Hello and welcome to another episode of your show. Uh, before we begin, just a, a little self-advertising, self-degradation. We have a GoFundMe account, support, I'm probably wrong about everything, as well as a Patreon account, which is uh, like a monthly subscription that you get into the show and you can interact with us. Um, and our, our first Patreon, of course, huge shout out to Melanie Gobranson. Thank you so much for believing in us. It means the world to me. So thank you for that, Melanie. And and uh, as I mentioned, all, all proceeds, every penny, every cent, every dollar is truly appreciated from the bottom of my heart. If you go to a restaurant, you tip your waiter, you tip your waitress. Uh, and uh, this is just another way that you can show your appreciation. All proceeds go to uh, the people that help make this show as well as to get better equipment in making the best show possible for you, the listener, as well as to my wife, who I can say to her, hey, look, I'm making something out of this, which just another way of, of showing my appreciation and your appreciation for her and her patience in letting me pursue my dream. So thank you to everybody who makes this possible. It means the world to me. Today's guest is Omari Newton. Amari is a writer, director, producer, comedian, slam poet. He has a prestigious acting career on stage, film, and voice. You may have seen him as Larry Summers in Blue Mountain State, the Black Panther in Marvel Superheroes, the animated television series. Uh, Omari and I had a wonderful conversation. We talked about everything from his career to the systemic racism that's affecting the world, uh, even religion. And, and a lot more. So I know you're going to enjoy it. There's a lot here. And thank you for listening. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. All right. We got uh, with us Omari Newton. Omari, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. So we're, we're at the, the very end of 2020, you and I right now. And when this is released, it'll be 2021. So how has the year been for you? That is such a, a complicated question. I, I think objectively speaking for myself and so many others, 2020 in a lot of ways was the shittiest year that I've lived through. Uh, I think the I don't think we're going to fully understand the mental health toll that this year has had on us until years later, once everybody's vaccinated, we're on the other side of this, like, it's been heavy, man, it's been heavy in a lot of ways. And then, on the other hand, you know, I feel like it, it was a year of incredible personal and professional growth for me. So in some ways, it was the best year ever, you know? Yeah, well, I, I was watching an interview with you, and you've done uh, your, your career is, you know, you've done theater, you've done film, and you've, you've done a lot of voice work. So during the coronavirus, were you doing more kind of voice work or? Yeah, my career has shifted more to voiceover for I'd say the past six, seven years for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a really nice run when I was like a, a series regular or recurring on different TV series. And just, it was like total chance, right? And I, I feel like it's awesome. Working in TV and film when, you're, when you got a regular gig is the best. <laughs> but when you're when you're out there grinding, which is most of our careers, that's a little bit tougher. But lately, I've been very blessed uh, with some recurring voice gigs that have kept me busy. Well, one of the voice gigs that you've done is the Black Panther 
in yeah. the Marvel, the kids. I, I don't know the titles, but there's the. Yeah. The, so that's, this is an interesting one. I currently do the voice for Marvel superheroes, uh, which is a show on Disney XD. Uh, they just released uh, Marvel uh, Lego Avengers, and I was asked back by somebody at Marvel who, who likes my voice to do it for the Lego series as well. But the first time I did it was in 2012 for a uh, motion comic book for Marvel. So I've actually been doing it for almost eight years now, or almost, you know, like I, I, I did the voice before the movie came out. And when nobody really cared yes. that I, I love Black Panther because I'm a nerd and I'm a black dude who loves comic yeah. books. But when I first booked it, it was like my personal favorite booking, but nobody really cared. But of course, since the movie and, you know, the tragic passing of Chad, yes. Nick, rest in peace, it's taken on even more significance. Yeah. Well, I mean, that must I actually let's talk about that for a sec. So before you were the first person to kind of from my understanding, to give voice to the character, the Black Panther. Is that correct? Not, not the first one. I was, right. I was, in recent years in Canada, I've been the primary voice on, on productions that happened in Canada for the past eight or almost 10 years. They had uh, animated series with some incredible actors like uh, Keith David did it, uh, Jaimon Hutsu, who people might know, he was famous for, you know, Amistad and a, a million other movies. He, he did it like, you know, of course, Chadwick Boseman. There was, I actually wrote an article that talked about being part of the Black Panther fraternity because the, there've only been like maybe 10 or 11 actors who've done the voice. And I've, I've one of them and I've, I've had a pretty good run that's lasted since 2012. So. so how did you, and I really love this in your interview, you talked about how you came up with the voice for mm -hmm. the Black Panther. How did you yeah. create that? Because nobody comes to you and they say, okay, Amari, this is how we want it to sound. Or, may, or maybe they do, I'm not sure, but. No, so, so it's interesting. As a teacher and I, as somebody who's never been to theater school, uh, I always try to approach things in a very practical way that's, that's easy for people to understand because I, you know, I didn't have formal training, right? So my process of building any voice, it always comes down to what resonator does the character live in? And just very rough strokes, there's like the, the head uh, and kind of nose, there's like the throat, there's the chest, and there's like deep in your, in your guts. You can switch those resonators, right? So for Black Panther, I figured he was a character who lived more in the chest. Like my natural speaking voice, as you can hear, is kind of in my throat, right? Mm -hmm. But you know, if I'm doing Black Panther, he has to talk deeper than, because if I was like, right. hello, I am a Black Panther, nobody yeah. would. <laughs> who's this geek? Yeah, yeah, yeah who's yeah. this nerd, right? Yeah. Which is what I, well, my natural voice is more nerdy, right? So yeah, and I, and I was very blessed. But the first professional play I ever did was called My Children, My Africa, and it was written by a South African playwright called Atul Fugard. So mm -hmm. I, I'd studied different African dialects, although my accent sounds more West African than it does South African, but. I'd, I'd play on stage an African character before, so I just brought that to the audition and thankfully they liked it and they kept me around. Nice, yeah. Well, cause, and, and again, you talked about how the Black Panther is this regal, powerful character and that's why you spoke from the chest, mm -hmm. right? And I thought that was so cool. And then I'm not gonna lie, I started practicing voices during <laughs> that interview. <laughs> you, you you mentioned that uh, when you were younger, you actually had to get an operation. On yeah, brain. yeah. Wow, you've done your research. That's nice, man. I uh, I was born with what they call polyps on my vocal cords. So I was one of those kids who, when I was really, really young, um, I had a voice like this. 
it was really hoarse and I would lose my voice all the time. And, and I, I'd always loved performing and, and loved acting, but I figured like I could never really be an actor because my voice was so messed up. And then, yeah, I had surgery in the third grade and it was just like a whole new world opened up to me in that I finally, I could like speak and sound in a way that was, that was like, I guess, more appealing to, to people listening, right? So my, sorry, that was my wash machine. Uh, yeah, my, my, it was like a whole new world was opened up to me because my, my voice worked the way that I heard it in my head. So that was exciting. That's cool, actually. So when I was a kid, I loved James Bond movies, right? And after the movies, I'd be running in the parking lot pretending I'm running away from a helicopter shooting at me or whatever. I've always had a vivid imagination. Mm-hmm. And you've talked a lot about, you know, your inner geek and stuff like that. What is it that made you want to get into acting? Yeah, it was a couple things. So I loved movies and cartoons when I was a kid. And I was always one of those kids who I would sit at home watching cartoons and would always try to impersonate the voices of the characters that I saw on the cartoons I did, right? So that was, you know, I'm sure it drove my family nuts, but I just, I had an ear for it and I loved it. And it's interesting. So my, my parents are from Trinidad and Tobago, right? Mm. And there's a theory that if you have immigrant parents, but, and you live in, you know, Canada or the US and you choose to speak with uh, a more Western accent, you're already voice acting. Cause you know, right. we all learn how to speak from our parents, obviously, right? So my mother and father sound like this, the one from Trinidad and Tobago. But when I went to school to fit in subconsciously, I just went, let me just speak like my classmates, right? So I was already doing a performance at a young age. And the theory is that my ear kind of adjusted to different rhythms because my parents spoke different from people in my school, you know? Right. That's almost like, I, you know, please correct me on this, but yeah. some, some homes, they speak different languages mm-hmm. and then the kids come to school and because they don't want to be seen as different, yep. right. They, they try to pick up and, and speak the English language. So why do you think you sort of, adjusted you didn't use the accent at home was that because of osmosis because you were around Mm -hmm. the kids or is that because you didn't want to look different so here's what's interesting to add another level to it i was born in montreal quebec so Mm -hmm. my parents and we all at home spoke english my parents with a trinidadian accent and then i went to school and i studied in french right so i studied in french immersion so already i was like at the time i was in cote de neige which is a, a suburb of montreal an area of montreal so a lot of my classmates were primarily francophone so there was like levels to me trying to kind of fit in, right? I was, my parents spoke with this accent and a lot of my classmates were French. So I just had to adjust my ear. Like if you heard me, Chris makes fun of me all the time, our, our mutual friend, Chris Francis, because his French is impeccable. His family is from <laughs> Haiti. But if you heard me speak French, it lives in a different part of my body than English does. Just because I, I learned French from listening to my classmates, right? And different, different languages and accents live in different palettes or different resonators of the body. Whoa. I know it's weird. Cool. Well, I know I'm guilty of it. And sometimes when I'm talking with other, like with people with accents, it's almost like I pick up pieces of that. And then I think to myself, I'm like, am I being like an asshole by doing that? You know, I think it's hard not to, I think, you know, if you like, you've seen this all the time, I'm sure I've had friends who've like, well, my sister, for example, my sister, my twin sister, moved to England when she went to university. She studied at the University of Liverpool. And, you know, she's obviously my twin. We grew up in the same place. After a couple of years, she came back. And it's not that she was doing a British accent, but her inflections 
started to match British people. Right. And I, and I would make fun of her. Like, she'd be like, you know, I don't know. Like, she'd be like, can we go to the movies? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, we can. And you know how like Canadians yeah. would be like, hey, can we go in the movies? She'd yeah. be like, can we go to the movies? And I'm like, are you, why are you doing that? She's like, doing what? <laughs> it was, but it wasn't an accent. I'm doing it. I'm making fun of her more. She would just be like, doing what? Yeah. British people have this like upward inflection. Yes. That yeah. happened to my, uh, a buddy of mine. He lives in, in, in France right now and he's come back. He was back last, well, not now, obviously, but last Christmas he was back. And the way he was speaking, he was speaking English, but it just, to me, it had this, this Parisian sort of uh, yeah. structure to it. And I was yeah. like, man, you, you speak like you're Parisian. He's like, what are you talking about? And even, even in how he said it, it was like, I, yeah, I, See, it's, it's like the spacing or something of how he's saying it. So if you want to nerd out and get deep in the weed of accents, right? Yeah. So as you've observed, yeah, Parisians and people from France have a different, have a different inflection in English, even than uh, Francophones from Canada. Right. And I, I, as someone from Montreal, like, if you meet the guy there who comes from Quebec, they talk like, hey, man. Right. What are you doing? How are, how are you doing? Hey, I have to do that, right? The people who come from France, it's, it's more mm -hmm. like, it lives in the news, they talk like this. Like, it's a different, it just lives in a different resonator with a different inflection. And it's it's really hard if you're living amongst people and they all talk that way, not yeah. to absorb some of that. Have you ever seen that movie, Inglorious Bastards? Yeah, I love that movie. The, the scene when the, the English guy is speaking perfect German and the guy's like, where are you from? And that gives away his cover. Yeah. Yeah, that well, scene sort of. The other amazing one is uh, when Christoph Waltz Challenges Brad Pitt and his Margarita. Yeah, yeah. And he's speaking <laughs> Italian. Yeah. Brad Pitt does the worst Italian accent ever. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, it's pretty spot on for like, you know, this American, the stereotypical yeah. American, right? Now, yeah. and another cool story that you're talking about with your voice is you had this nurse who she had to check on your voice after the surgery to see yeah. you know, how, how things were going. And she said something along the lines of, well, you know, you'll never be an actor, but your voice sounds really good. Yeah, it was pretty funny. And, and it's funny. It's not even like she had to check on my voice. It was the elementary school nurse. Yes. So I'd had the surgery. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure she was an actual nurse, right? But, I, you know, I was known. Actually, I used to get teased as a kid. And my nickname was Horsemouth because mm -hmm. I, I would always have a horse throat. So they would call me Horsemouth. And I remember I, I came to school after the surgery and the nurse wanted me to talk. And of course, I couldn't hear the difference. I couldn't tell. But everybody was like, oh, my God, like your voice, it's so clear, you know. So she heard me speak and she was like, oh, wow, like your voice sounds great. She's like, you know, you'll never be like a singer or an actor, but like big improvement. Yeah. And I and I, she couldn't I'm sure she had no malice. right? She couldn't have known that my dream was to be mm -hmm. an actor. But like I remember even in grade three thinking to myself, like, F you, like, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna, I could be an actor if I want to be an actor. That was like a challenge accepted, right? Kind so, of, yeah. I'm sure that throughout your life, you know, you've experienced a lot of adversity, right? You've had to be resilient. Sure. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, man. For I mean, one, being uh, a Black man in North America comes with its challenges. Of course, you know, racism exists living in a system that, you know, Canada is a country that was colonized, the effects of colonialism and white supremacy still exist. So just navigating that is a challenge in and of itself. And then on top of that, choosing a profession that that is just so difficult, like being an actor is not an easy task, right? I definitely have faced some adversity in my life, but 
then there's the other side, right? Where there are people who were born poor in India, for example, you know, which Canada, we're very blessed in that at least there's like a social safety net here where I would rather be broke in Canada, I think, than almost anywhere in the world. Yeah, they're very different. Like being broke, like I, I was speaking to a guy previously on the podcast and his whole life he just travels, mm-hmm. right? And he said he went to India and he saw poverty there and it shattered him. Yeah. Like he yeah. came back to Canada after and just the way that we see the world, yeah. right? That I see the world, it was very frustrating for him because we had no yeah. idea what poverty is. No idea. Yeah. No idea, man. It's like, and it's interesting here. I'm, I'm always fascinated by Canadians, people who, like myself, who were born here and, and were blessed by pure luck with a Canadian citizenship and choose not to follow their dreams, where I go, what's the downside? In a country like Canada where, you know, absolute worst case scenario, healthcare is paid for, there's a welfare system, you know, there are shelters for you to sleep if you, and this is like, if you don't have family, absolute worst case scenario, we have a government system that'll prop you. Like, like, dude, when the pandemic started, my friends in LA and my friends in like Florida and Atlanta, when I explained to them that our government was paying us two grand a month to stay home, they were like, what? Like the stimulus check they got in the States was 600 bucks, like one One, one, yeah, one stab at it, yeah. And think about if you live in, New York, which was like the epicenter of the pandemic, or LA, or some of these cities where the cost of living, you know, Boston, like, what are you going to do with 600 bucks once? Nothing. If you're already, you know, you're already working at Burger King, or you're working at whatever, 600 bucks, like, it's insane to me that a country with so much wealth could abandon its citizens. And, and on top of that, we got two grand a month, and we already have, you know, you know basic health care. Could you imagine, like, if you got sick during during uh, COVID in the states, not only is your health destroyed, but you're bankrupt. Well, what's going on in the states, and I just I watch it, and it's like, dude, it's heartbreaking to watch. Like, there's lineups for food that are forever. I mean, I'm reading a book by Stacey Abrams right now, and oh, it's cool. about voting, mm-hmm. and how you know, for lack of a better word, how fucked up that is. Right, like hours, and then they get there. They've waited four hours in line. These are black voters. Yeah, and then there's no votes. I know. Think about how undemocratic that is. It's disgusting, right? It's and and then and then on top of that, you know, the people who do tough it out and and make huge sacrifice to vote, and then democratically, the guy they vote for wins, and you got a president just spreading insane conspiracy theories and lies about voter fraud and all, all kinds of bullshit like yeah. yeah it's crazy man it's bullshit it's bullshit like it, and, and that's actually kind of why i'm so thankful that you're on here because i see the world i still see it through my lens if that mm-hmm. makes sense so i can read all the books and everything and then but i still like we talk about white privilege and you know i still buy into it right like i still mm-hmm. think like well you know i mean it's it could be better or whatever. You know, I, my mm-hmm. point is, is that I will keep seeing the world through my eyes and I keep, need to keep checking myself. Mm-hmm. And that's why we need to be able to have conversations like democracy, mm-hmm. how it originally was in the Socratic times, mm-hmm. Socrates would have conversations with people 
and he would make them think there wasn't a cancel culture mm-hmm. no but there were people that yeah i mean he was killed for the way that he spoke <laughs> yeah right That's the other side of it yeah yeah and, and and so we need to have these conversations but i find that the dialogue that we're having it's nobody's really listening yeah right i i agree it's interesting though I am a big proponent of open dialogue and I'm not a fan of cancel culture, but I also feel like there are some people who they're intellectually dishonest in the, in that they, they position like an example that I even hate to like give the guy props, but whatever, but but not props, but to name check the guy. But like, you look at somebody like Steven Crowder. I know if you ever watched like Steven Crowder is this, this right wing social media guy, lateral Crowder. And he has this thing that's now become a meme, which is like, prove me wrong. And he'll just sit down on like a university campus with a sign saying, feminism is bullshit, prove me wrong, Mm -hmm. whatever. And that's a situation where, while I don't believe in cancel culture, I don't think he is genuine in his aims to have a discourse. I think he's somebody who, he goes into a conversation with his mind made up and his goal is to, to mock or ridicule or humiliate people with opposing views. Whereas if somebody says, hey, I'm a guy and I genuinely don't understand the need for feminism, explain it to me. That to me is a different conversation. And, and by the way, even as a liberal progressive person, we can be insufferable, like liberals, like, because there's definitely a strain of liberals who are just like, fuck you, what do you mean? You don't know about feminism? And, and I also think that is toxic and that is super, because some people, they just genuinely don't know, mm-hmm. right? And, and on the liberals, I mean, so I'm going to try and formulate this here, but yeah, we're all for equality. And then a black family moves in or, a, or a, well, in our case, maybe an East, uh, a, a Southeast Asian family moves in. Sure. And then they're doing this, right? Like, sure. And then yeah. all of a sudden all the houses are for sale. Right. So that's yeah. bullshit. Yeah, sure. You know what I mean? Sure. And uh, I think that um, with, with technology, technology is really shaping these conversations in terms of the algorithms, right? We use this fancy mm-hmm. word algorithms, which really just means what it is that we're interested in, right? We're gonna keep getting that. For mm-hmm. example, I watched uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom last night. Oh, nice. I haven't seen it yet. I heard it's, it's brilliant. It, did you see Fences? Yes. I so love, it's, yeah, I love it's very much like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who, he's a white guy, right? No, black guy, black guy. Uh, the writer. The writer, the playwright, August Wilson was a black playwright and educator who wrote, you know, he's kind of considered like the great black playwright, one of the great black playwrights of, uh, of his generation. Yeah, he wrote uh, Fences and, the, you know, like the, the, he's, he's got an incredibly huge canon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it spanned the 20th century, right? Like, because mm-hmm. it's funny what's interesting. When I looked up his picture, it looked like he was a white guy. Oh, interesting. And like history does shit like this, Hmm. right? Like Mary Laveau, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but she was the voodoo queen Hmm. of New Orleans. You look a picture up of her and she has like, she's, I I imagine she was black, but she looks white. Oh, and history does shit like this, right? We could could have a conversation about Jesus where you think he was a black well or an Arab Arab man for sure if you look at the the geographical location he was in and the descriptions of him not that I'm a biblical scholar but from what I understand he's he's pretty clearly described as like a copper-toned curly-haired person he didn't look like a hippie 
No, and, he, and, and you know, just given the region of the world that we know he lived in, the likelihood of him being a white guy was not very high. But, but yeah, his, his, I mean, history, as we all know, like those books and those stories are told by the, the winners and by the victors and the conquerors. So it's not a surprise that they try to like whitewash history. And, and uh, kind of piggybacking on that. So I'm not a history buff, but I love being theoretical, not, uh, not, not conspiratory. You know what I mean? Like conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. I like just being a theorist, I guess. Mm-hmm. And as we know, Christianity was extremely popular in Europe, Western Europe, and those are all mm-hmm. white people. Mm-hmm. And to make it more of a sell to jump onto this religion, let's make it look like somebody you know, right? Mm-hmm. If we made it accurate to who Jesus was, the mm-hmm. historical Jesus, then people would be like, well, I don't have anything you know, in connection with this person. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I and also it's just like the history of European countries, you know, expanding, you look at the Crusades, like expanding Christianity and just slaughtering people in the name mm. of, of the of the book. Like, I think they were more interested in the expansion of power and used religion as just a guise for what they were doing. You know? Yeah. Well, that's, mm-hmm. that's what religion is. I mean, I, that's an extreme statement, but religion is rules. Right. Right. And why are there rules there to control the people? Why is homosexuality a sin? Like, please right. explain that to me. You could have, you say God is love, but then you say that homosexuals are, are demons. Like, yeah, please, please help change my mind. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the levels of hypocrisy amongst some Christians I'll specify are pretty, yeah astounding but you know at the same time though like i i grew up going to protestant church right right and again not historian but the the origins of protestantism right the strain of christianity that was protesting the catholic church and this idea that you needed to like pay a lot of money and go through the church for a relationship with god so we know that martin luther was this guy and this was apparently connected to to the invention of the printing press who was like let's make this religion for the masses. He, he pinned the, the 95 theses up and he said, this now that we can print the Bible, it's accessible to everyone. You don't need to go through the church. Your relationship with God is personal. So then I, when I grew up, I was raised in a United church where like our, our minister, he would marry gay couples. He, you know, he would openly speak about accepting people. Like, so I, th- I think there's a lot of things about Christianity that are beautiful. Like the, the, the whole concept of love thy neighbor the problem is when it gets hijacked and people selectively choose specific yes. sections to follow, you know, by the letter of the law and it can be used as a force for evil. And I think that speaks more to the people corrupting it than it does about religion itself. Well, for me, I see a difference between religion and faith. Right. Right. I, I do see a schism there and, and that's based on my own interpretation mm-hmm. and which is something I want to talk about is subjectivity and objectivity. Mm-hmm. But to me, religion is rules that are sent to kind of control, dominate, and, and uh, uh, you know, acquire power. Whereas faith mm-hmm. is like, this is my faith, you know, and I, I love you for your belief, right? Mm-hmm. That's your belief. But yeah. religion is like, I just find it crazy how we live in the 21st century. And there are people, some, as you say, not all, but they're like, this is the only thing you can believe in. Anything else is blasphemy. Yeah, like, dude, we like. How can you say that? It's right? it's it's 
it's wild. And I think any belief system that is that removes nuance is scary, you know? Whether that's religious or whether it's like you're part of a political organization, which is, that's a whole other conversation we can have about like how political discourse these days is so polarized that you can't have a moderate opinion. You just have to like, I'm right wing, I'm left wing, I'm, you know, whereas the reality is I have friends from all sides of the political spectrum who are incredibly, like some of my close friends are devout Christian conservatives, right? Mm -hmm. We have fundamental disagreements about, about a lot of things, but the ones that I mess with are, are good people. They, most of yes. them, to be honest with you, they just go like, I don't want to pay a lot of taxes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like most of my conservative friends have money and they just go, I want the government to stay out of my business. I don't want the government to spend a lot of money. But it, the problem is when it gets into the, the like identity politics where it's like, I think gay people are evil. Like I can't, I can't tolerate that. And if you vote for someone, like my conservative friends in the States, did not vote for Trump. Because to me, it's like, even if you are a conservative, you should be able to recognize if somebody who's supposedly from your party has taken things to an extreme. Right. And I can't, I can't mess with you if you excuse that to pay less taxes. Yeah. Well, I, I, I heard a good uh, interview with Charlemagne um, and he was talking about racism, right? And he was like, if an alien invasion comes in, and we have to fight this greater good, and you're still a racist, I actually respect that. Like, you are really diehard on that opinion, right? But it's like we we, lo we love conflict, and yeah. we're afraid of, of difference. Yeah. And piggybacking on what you say, you know, people aren't evil. You know what I mean? Like, we look at in, in film Darth Vader and Sauron and all these, like, you know, Hitler, right? Mm -hmm. these great evils the thing is is that evil can be quite um banal you know what i mean like it can be quite mm -hmm. normal right mm -hmm. that our what we what we deem as good intentions is actually the path to hell i mean if yeah, I, I totally agree and if you even look you know talking about movies right thanos thought that he was acting for the greater good he was, you know, Thanos was like, I need to rebalance the universe. There's too many people. We got to, you know, he even, even Thanos, who's like the epitome of evil in movies, thought he was doing the thing that was in the best interest of the universe. And even in that, because he didn't say, I'm going to kill all the, you know, the white people or the whatever. I'm just going to make it completely uh, unbiased. Mm -hmm. And after hearing that, and then you look at the world and you don't want to agree with the person, but you're like, I can see that point. Whereas, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. See, that's this is a, a dark. This conversation can get dark real quick because yes. overpopulation is definitely an issue, right? We are we the, the and it's it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And there are people who believe. And again, I'm not a scientist or virologist, whatever. But there are people who think that things like global warming or diseases are the universe rebalancing going humanity has, has kind of spread at a rapid rate, like a cancer, they're, we're killing the planet. There's too many people, we're, we're eating up the resources, right? And it's like, earth has been here and will continue to be here. Earth will be fine. Whether we are yes. <laughs> you know, able to survive here is a different conversation. Earth might just be like, I need these guys to go. <laughs> right.
and and we've seen that happen before you know I, sure george carlin um the the stand-up comedian he said that too he's Love like yeah. people who are you know green piecers or whatever he called them you got to understand that it's just us that we're worried about we human beings are selfish creatures i know yeah. that's an extreme statement but well what, well what do you think about that when i say human beings are selfish creatures yeah, I think I I mean there are there are people who would argue that everyone is selfish and everything we do is is self-motivated even to the point and I, to some extent I believe that like you know personally I like helping my friends for for selfish reasons it makes me feel good when I help my friends. So one could argue that the the idea of a selfless act is impossible because I'm getting something out of helping a buddy with an audition or helping them move or even even like you know helping a stranger giving a guy change and like it makes me feel good right so there, there i think there's a strong argument somebody can make that everyone's self-motivated just some people what what gets them off is deemed as productive by society versus destructive yes yeah and and um i don't it, it's funny my daughter she's the greatest teacher right and we talk about thanos and you know wiping out half the population but then it's like well who's got to go i mean i had is that my daughter right and then and then i think my love for my daughter that's how i imagine everybody feels about their children regardless of race religion sexuality you know what i mean that i don't know i just it's like completion. I don't know. I can't explain it. And words would just betray it. Louis C.K. had this great joke. And I know that Louis C.K. has been canceled recently. And for good reason. He did a lot of shitty stuff. But I was a fan before I learned about how his personal flaws. He had this great joke about, uh, he's like, I don't love children. Right? I don't love kids. Like, I love my kids. He's like, I have kids. I love my kids. He's like, if my kids were in a building that was on fire, I would step on your kids. To, to yeah. to, like, he's joking, obviously, yeah. right? He was talking about that same thing about like the love that we have for our own, which is why it's difficult when you get into conversations about like Thanos snapping the finger, even if it is the quote unquote right thing to do to rebalance. And I, and I guess it's not even that abstract. We can think about Corona, right? Like these mm. people who are arguing, who are arguing for herd immunity, it's like, okay, cool. So you're arguing for this herd immunity thing. Are you willing to sacrifice your grandmother? Yeah. So that so that the majority of people will be because I'm not willing to sacrifice mine. Yeah. You know? oh. and, and and that just puts it into perspective because like when I look at the anti-maskers, there's you know, not to not to stereotype or anything, but it's a lot of white people. Yeah. Why, why is that? Because I, I just feel like I, I can't speak for all white people, but right. again, trying to see it through the eyes that I have, it's like, well, go ahead. Yeah. 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 One, statistically speaking, people of color have been disproportionately affected by the coronavirus in the States and we don't keep as, as tight stats on in Canada, but I was suspecting Canada as well. And this, of course, is for a number of factors. I'm sure some of them are socioeconomic. You know, without getting too deep into it, if you look at the history of colonialism, people of color, Black people specifically, 
who are systemically excluded from land ownership. One of the best ways to pass on generational wealth is through the transfer of land. So it's not surprising that if you, if you look at in the year 2020, there are a disproportionate number of black people and Latino people and indigenous people and people of color who don't have, who are poor. And when you're poor, especially in America, you can't afford healthcare. You, you, you probably live in buildings that are, you know, more in close quarters, they're, they're less clean. Like, so for all these factors, people of color have been disproportionately affected by this pandemic. So I think a lot of these white people who think it's, a, it's fake and don't empathize with what's going on probably don't know that many people personally who've died or gotten really sick from the virus. I think it's as simple as that. And I think anybody, if, you're, if your mom or your dad or your wife got sick and died from this thing, you would take it really seriously. And, and you know what? I apologize. I lost you there for a bit, but I got at the end there, you saying that due to lack of uh, relationship, right? Mm-hmm. You not knowing anybody who's experienced it, you start to question the reality of it, right? I, I, think, that, I think that some people do. I think because they, they are not personally affected, they don't take it as seriously, which I think is a really sad and gross stance to take because there's so many examples of things that like we're not affected by, but we know are, are real. Like I, dude, I live in Vancouver, I've never lived through a tsunami or tornadoes, but I don't think that tornadoes are fake. (laughs) I don't don't think hurricanes are, I believe (laughs) that that is a real threat. And I, and I, if, 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 you know, like when hurricane Katrina happened, I'm sure I donated to causes for Katrina, even though I wasn't personally affected because I can empathize with the people who went through it. So I don't know why it's so hard for people to go. I don't know who's gotten sick, but I believe that people are getting sick. I think and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to flesh this idea out, but, and this might offend people. And if so, well, hey, I'm sorry, but white exceptionalism, mm. right? This idea that, you know, um, it can't happen. It hasn't happened to me, so it's not happening, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, a lack of relationship with people of diversity, right? I mm. think that, there's like something going around. It's like make a friend who doesn't look like you or something like that. Anyways, mm-hmm. but what you get out of that, right? Because it is abstract if we don't experience it. And because we have uh, so many, you know, white uh, privilege or, or, or you yeah. know, whatever you want to call that, because we have privileges, again, going back to land ownership and things like that, right? And And not to say that all white people are, you know, one onto the same equally, but there's mm-hmm. just something there that they're separate from it. For example, indigenous communities have been greatly impacted by COVID mm-hmm. and I haven't heard much about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the whole, yeah. I mean, as much as a legitimate beef I might have with the treatment and the experiences I have as a black man, I couldn't fathom being indigenous in Canada or the U S where I, it's funny for years, you know how when you go to events, you'll hear people say we're on the unceded territory of yes. whatever, like, like in Vancouver, the, the unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam and Tsleil-Waututh people. I would hear that said all the time. And I never really understood what unceded meant until one of my indigenous friends explained. Like I, I just kind of heard it and dismissed it. And then my buddy was like, unceded quite literally means this land was never lost in a war it was never signed away in the treaties. 
this land quite literally by any measuring stick still is technically owned by indigenous people and like you, you don't think about that right it's like like imagine i don't know the example i use imagine like your grand your great grandmother's house imagine if people just moved in took guns and said hey get out this is my house now and there's no and no one's debating this we know what happened there was video of it there's records of it and then imagine several generations from now you walk by and it's a nice house it's like a mansion on really nice land you walk by this mansion every day and you're like oh that's my grandmother's house and this like white family is just living in this house and now the house is worth three million dollars they can borrow money against this house they have a place to live and imagine those people in that house seeing you walk by and be like hey native guy get the fuck off my lawn right like the levels of disrespect and unfairness it's amazing that indigenous people have not taken to the streets and gone to drastic measures against Canada. And and that epitomizes to me ignorance, right? Mm. They just not getting it. The, the white people, I mean. Yeah. Like saying, you know, get the fuck off my lawn. Yeah. You really just like, and that goes back to the importance of having these conversations because if we're just gonna, here's the reality, right? Going back onto uh, Stacey Abrams and this need for, there's two options. You kind of, you update democracy for what it needs to be, mm-hmm. or it, the whole thing's getting you know torn down. And believe me when I say this, you do not want the latter, right? <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of a you know I've heard well I've heard of peaceful revolutions, but this one won't be. No, and I think we're starting to see the beginnings of it in the states. You know, yeah. like this this summer when the situation happened with George Floyd. And you saw, I mean, what happened in Minneapolis was insane, but also not entirely surprising. Like at some point, if you have people who are poor and they're not getting justice and they're at some point, they're going to snap. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what, what people thought was going to happen. It's like, if you, if you see somebody who looks like you get murdered on camera and then there's no justice for the people who did it, what are you supposed to do? Right. What can you do? Yeah, I mean, there's feelings of what can I do? I, I imagine. I mean, I don't. Like when I saw, so when I saw the George Floyd and going back to my daughter and and this is me trying to, to speak my own egotism, right? I was like, you know, what if that was my kid? And he even cries out for his, mo- his mother. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, and that's why it's like, those are the only two options that I can see. So what are the solutions? Like, what is a solution? I, I now, so your instinct, you saw that and it's very encouraging. You, you thought to yourself, what if that was my daughter? Imagine seeing that video and thinking to yourself, what did that thug do to deserve this? Which is what a significant portion of Americans did. And that's the thing is that you saw it through a lens of empathy and understanding and compassion. Whereas, and this is not, this is deliberate, right? If you have been fed a steady diet of right-wing media, whether it's, you know, the rebel, Jesus, I don't know if you ever watched on YouTube, Ezra Levant has this channel in Canada, the rebel, which is like Fox News Canada. And I've, I've been watching it as research lately just to see mm-hmm. what these guys are about. And it is wild. It is wild the, the the levels of insecurity, 
delusion and just anger and vitriol they have towards people who aren't like them. And if that's your news source, it's, it's gonna mess you up. Your, your level of compassion and empathy will be distorted. And, and that goes to my philosophy of you gotta fuck with the algorithms, right? Yeah. Like I've read Ben Shapiro. Do you, are you familiar yeah. with him? Oh, I'm, I am. I, I am. He's, he's one of the scariest ones to me. And I'll tell you why in a second. Okay. And then I've read uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I guess what I'm trying to say is I sort of see, and, and please, you know, check me on sure. this. I sort sure. of see where Ben Shapiro is coming from. Like sure. he's like, America is the greatest country, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I see his thesis statement because he's saying that the, the middle won't hold and this side's going to go and, and that side, right? That, that America is being fragmented. But my, my question to him is, is, okay, all nations to stay great, they need to stay current. Mm. You can't just be living in your glory of 200 years ago. And again, glory for who? Yeah. Right? Back in the good old days. Okay, motherfucker. Good for who? For... <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. a Protestant white man, right? Yeah. Wasn't good for women. Nope. Right? I, no, I, well, see, the scariest thing about Ben Shapiro is he's yeah. clearly a very intelligent guy. And I don't think, I don't know, maybe I'm giving you, I don't think at his heart of heart, he believes the bullshit he's like, it just, I'm bewildered by him. I, I feel like he has a, he knows what his base is. He knows what his target demographic is and he knows exactly what's going to get clicks and views and he's right. happy to feed it to them. I, who knows? Maybe he does believe that stuff. But I listen to him speak sometimes and I go, this is an intelligent guy that is playing less educated people who are vulnerable for suckers and getting richer and richer and richer off of deliberately misleading people that are not as smart as he is and not as wealthy as he is. So you're saying that you don't even think he believes in what he's saying. He's just doing it because he's making a ton of money. I don't know if it's money, man. I don't know if it's money. I don't know if it's social capital or social credit. I just think, like, he makes arguments sometimes that are, you're with him, you're with him, you're with him. And then he, he makes a leap that requires a fundamental, like, if it was a high school debate, whoever was running it would go, whoa, 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 stop. That statement that you just passed off as fact is actually not true and would need to be proven and supported for the rest of what you're saying to it. And I feel like he's too smart to not realize that. I mean, right. to be honest, I mean, Jordan Peterson does that a lot too. I think a lot of the stuff Jordan Peterson says, I'm with him to a point. It's, it's like, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think some of the stuff it's like, I think young men in particular, this is useful information when he talks about wake up in the morning and make your bed and there's purpose. And then he, he goes on these weird pivots where he then will just make some broad statement about white, why white privilege doesn't exist. And then his description of white privilege is not the description of white privilege. <laughs> you go, I don't believe, like you're, you're way too smart not to have heard this already. Right, well, it, it's almost like he, he's, uh, he's eating the devil's avocado, right? Like he's just <laughs> like, I wanna be on the other side. And, and just in spite of it all, and in many, in, in many respects, I think it's important to have that side, but it's how does that side conduct itself? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. for example, um, BLM uh, protests are always like, they're always looking for violence. Yeah. And then they say that Trump protests, like you saw Trump's son when, when they were saying uh, that the, the, the vote was miscounted 
And, you know, they all took to the streets and there was no violence. And it's like, dude, you need to stop doing cocaine. All right. You don't know what you're talking about. I mean, they also were, even though they were registered firearms, like there was no violence, but they stormed state houses with semi-automatic weapons. Like, yeah, there's not going to be violence if you're armed to the teeth. And also if you're in, if you're largely supported by the police officers and by the government, they're not going to be confrontation. I mean, dude, did you see that the horrific video of that guy, Kyle Rittenhouse? Yeah. Like this dude was shooting unarmed people in the street, ran past the cops with his hand up, begging to be arrested. Nobody did anything. Like there was, there was a clear disparity between how certain members law enforcement, and I say certain members because I get accused sometimes of being anti-police. My best friend is a cop. My father-in-law was the, the chief of police of a town in Northern Ontario. I'm not an anti-police person, but it's simply disingenuous to not acknowledge that there is definitely, in my opinion, a conservative bias towards a lot of people in law enforcement. Why, why do you think that is? I think because of the historical relationship between marginalized communities and cops, a lot of people of color don't look towards law enforcement as a reliable or viable career. Because, and this is, this is also wrong, there are people in the black community who see a black cop as a sellout and he's, you know, he's working for the man. And it's it's horrible, right? Because we, dude, we need black cops. We need, I mean, not just black, we need good cops. It's a really hard job. They eat a lot of shit. It's dangerous. Like we need good cops of all colors, right? And, but there's this, I know that if I were to become a police officer, half of my social media would probably abandon, would just block me. They, they see, like, even some people found out of, that I was friends with cops and they came at me and were disgusted for associating with cops. Just, you know, there's an intense pressure in, in minority communities to be anti-police. And sort of my, and th- this is where I am with that. Like there's defund the police. And I think it should be, you know, reform the police. Like they're yeah. doing way too many things, man. Yeah. Right. I totally agree. And I, and it's funny that you said that. I've said this before. If the slogan was reform the police and reallocate some of those resources towards social services so the police can do their job because police, it should not be their job to be doing mental health checks or, you know, like, yeah, reform the police, reallocate funds towards social services, more people would be on board, right? But instead, People, and this is, I don't blame activists. It's just people on the other side not wanting to listen. They hear defund the police and their mind jumps to, you want to abolish the police? Well, what are you going to do if somebody breaks into your house? It's like, no one is saying that. Right. Well, that's not true. Some people are saying that. <laughs> there are people, some people are saying abolish the police, but I think they're equally ridiculous. Yeah. Well, that's that's so idealic, idealistic, right? We know what happens when there's no police there, right? They're there to... Yeah. Again, this is idealistic, of course, but the yeah. police are there to, you know, protect laws. Yeah. Right. Well, but that's again going, and we talked about religion. Yeah. And and to quote Spider Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Absolutely. Right. But power, power is. It's almost like it's meant to be abused. I sometimes think. Well, I think I think if you like, if you have absolute power and nobody can can check you. Mm-hmm. it tilts towards abuse because there's no one to stop you. Right. And if you, you know, a lot of people are just self-interested and they don't, 
they're they're sadly they're not motivated by like some kind of greater good. They're just going, what's best for me? But but I actually think, you know, in Canada in particular, we have great checks and balances that they don't always work. I think, you know, systemic racism definitely exists. There have, when I was younger in particular, I've definitely had some shitty experiences with the police that can't be dismissed as just one bad apple, right? But I think we've gotten to the point in society where people are increasingly starting to, to recognize this is a problem and we're at least working towards improving this issue, right? Nobody, like, I think the conversation has moved beyond like, are, are some police racist? Like, right. I, don't think, I don't think most people are, are surprised to hear that there's issues with, with the police, you know? And how did that, like, how did that happen? How did we get there? Do you, do you think, obviously you don't have the answers to that, but I'm curious what you think. To the point where there's more awareness about uh, systemic racism and police. Uh, yeah, like how, I, how did we I, become racist? You know what I mean? How did the system yeah. become racist? Oh, well, that one's easy. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, like if you look at colonialism and how Canada and America were formed, it was literally white Europeans who enslaved and, and you know, subjugated yeah. by force people of color and then set up a system that benefits them. That's, and that's just not even, that's historical fact. Yeah. Right. And, and, and then you look at, like, we talked about the example of with housing, right. Not being able to, I mean, here, here's an example I've used before. So my last name, my family name is Newton, right. My parents are West Indian from Trinidad and Tobago. Right. And we know that Trinidad and Tobago was a colony of England. So my, my father's last name was Newton. My mother's last name was Clifton. Those are two of the most British last names yeah. imaginable. Right. And we know that historically speaking, when uh, an African country was colonized, they would bring African people you know, by force to this new world and all of the slaves would take the last names of their slave master. So right. the effects of slavery are quite literally felt to my last name, Newton, to this day, to this day is the mark of uh, a colonizer who colonized my people. And that, that is true of so many African-Americans, Johnson, Smith, Jones. Like, I, I don't know what my family's, I mean, one day I've got to do my ancestry, but I don't know what my family's last name was from generations ago, but I can bet for damn sure that in Zimbabwe or Nigeria or wherever I was at, it wasn't Newton. <laughs> yeah. You know? what, Ibram Kendi, he talks about that because Kendi is his actual last name like he he uh, uh and, and not to uh paraphrase or anything but he reclaimed his his name mm -hmm. or something like that mm -hmm. and for him it was very powerful in his book uh, how to be an anti-racist mm -hmm. um this isn't me telling you what he yeah. felt or anything but no, no, uh, I, I have i've i've read it once i gotta read it again but yeah i, I know dude amazing but that book really helped me to to sort of see it right because a black person can be racist towards black people right uh chris rock talks about it in his skit yeah uh you know black people hate the n-word right yeah yeah yeah. and and then i try explaining this to my my white uncle and he's like huh i don't i don't get it and it's like okay well I, i'm not explaining this well right so well, well, white people can be racist towards other white people i mean but similarly there are anti-feminist women which I think yes. it's, a, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what feminism is. And I think with black people, colonialism runs deep, man. It's like, we, there's a lot of self-hatred in the black community to the point where standards of beauty to this day largely lean towards European, right? right? Like if you look at, especially in TV and film, 
oftentimes the like the beautiful black woman will be light skinned with straight hair, which is a more European. And oftentimes the, what they consider beautiful for black women is actually mixed race, part, part black, which is still black by the way, I'm not saying that's not black, but this is a direct result of colonialism and slavery. This idea that to be, be the more white you look, the more beautiful you are. Colorism. I mean, I, our, our friend Chris, he's from Haiti and they share a border with the Dominican Republic, mm -hmm. right? And the Dominican Republic to this day still looks down, this is based on my reading, still yes. looks down on Haitians because yep. they're darker, right? And the legacy there. Well, and also, I mean, I, again, I'm not a historian, but I know that uh, Haiti was one of the, the first uh, countries to successfully over, overthrow their oppressors. They, they had a war and kicked the French out, right? Mm -hmm. And they, the country has been paying the price ever since. Yes. And it's interesting where you look at like Dominican Republic and Haiti, same land, there's a you know, fictional border that separates them. One country, you know, the DR has thrived economically and the other has been struggling for years. And sometimes you'll hear uh, historians or educators who, who are biased and don't know their history, talk about this as though it's like, oh, those Haitians, you know, they just can't get their stuff together as though there wasn't like a targeted uh, sustained effort to make them pay for overthrowing their European oppressors, yeah. right? It's by design it's that by they're design. not able. Like Chris was telling me that France is, they're still paying back France or something like that. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not certain on that, but something that it's like, that is insane. Going back to colonialism and the system, it's still so painfully uh, alive and well today. Yeah. Right. So, so what, what is it that, that you would like to see in terms of changes? Again, just because you, you talk about your, your work in, in uh, film and the frustrations that you've had, what is it that you would like to see? So here's something that I'm sure my agent wouldn't be thrilled to hear, but whatever, whatever, I'm just trying to live an honest life. I'm increasingly less interested in being just an actor and I, mm -hmm. and I have for a while, I've, I've been directing, I've been writing, you know, my wife and I write some stuff together. My wife, who is, who is white, by the way, she's a, a Italian. We write a lot about our experiences as an interracial couple and about race. But what I'd like to see is more nuanced conversations about race and politics. I, I'm sick of like, you know, the Twitter version of discourse where everybody seems to be in a flame war and it's just like both quote unquote sides just trying to like land cool points by insulting the other one. It's just, it's not productive. It's not interesting. I'm interested in a more nuanced conversation in general about race and politics. And I hope as a producer and director, I get to help be part of that change. What's, what's a good example of something like that? I mean, I think the movie Get Out, if you were looking at, at like mainstream versions, I think Get Out is the most brilliant contemporary commentary on slavery that by a lot of people that was lost on them. Like a lot of people saw it as a really cool horror movie that happened on black people. They didn't see it as a metaphor, you know, even though there's been lots of literature written about this, but I think that's a great example. Um, I don't know, like, I think of, or even, I don't know, even stuff like, you know, a couple of years ago, Aziz Ansari did like Master of None, which was, it wasn't necessarily explicitly about race. It was just the perspective of this South Asian guy and just his life. Like, I'm just interested in hearing, hearing more stories 
from the perspective of people I'm not used to hearing stories from. Right. That are authentic representations of like, um, this might be a poor example and an inaccurate one, but a film like say, uh, The Princess and the Frog, right? And it's trying to tell a, 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 you know, a black story, but it's written by white people. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's a bit of a disconnect there. Whereas you look at something like, um, well, I just watched it last night, Ma Rainey's uh, Black, Black Bottom. Bottom and Denzel Washington. You know what I mean? Like it, was, mm-hmm. it wasn't mm-hmm. written by Harvey Weinstein. Right. You know but what I'm saying? I yeah. totally know what you're saying. And I'll also say, you know, um, that, that Princess and the Frog came out a couple of years ago. And at the time it was revolutionary just to see a black Disney princess. At the time that was like, whoa, yeah. and I think that's great. And I applaud that. But I think the conversation now has evolved so much further. Like, you know, I just watched uh, Soul last night, the Pixar movie, which is a beautiful movie that tackled some pretty interesting concepts. I'm actually not sure who wrote that. I'm not sure if there was a black person who wrote that, but it was a black lead and it was a black family. And it, it, was, it was a more nuanced look at a black protagonist than just this princess who just happened to be black. You know, like they, you know, right. I don't when, know. I just, when, you, when you talk about that in the Hallmark films that you used to star in, that you were just the black cop. Well, I've never starred in one. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. I've, I've acted in them. I've been, I was number seven on the call sheet of one, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Starred, acted. Right. I, my, my terminology isn't there, but um, you know, it, and in a way that's kind of a bit of a stereotype, you know, that, that role yeah. that you played there. So it's, it, uh, it's hugely a stereotype and it's interesting. Like Hallmark in Vancouver is a major employer. And, they, and I will actually say it's, it's been pretty incredible. They have come leaps and bounds from where they're at. Hallmark now, like this year, they had several movies where they had a movie that was had gay leads. They had a Hanukkah movie. They had black. And I, I actually am not going to, shit on Hallmark, I will applaud the fact that they are making tangible changes, right? That being said, Hallmark still presents a vision of the world that is largely kind of like Christian and conservative and and that's fine, right? I, I got family who are Christian and conservative. I just didn't get into acting or the arts right. to just speak to that demographic. I have things that I wanna say that are, that are to audiences other than the Hallmark core demographic. And, and kind of going back to what you say, um, that you want to tell a story that is nuanced, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to just be, this is what it is. This is what it always is, right? Mm-hmm. What, what's a good example of your work where you've had a nuanced um, approach or message? So I'll give two examples. I, I wrote a play uh, called The Lamentable Tragedy of Sal Capone. I started writing it in 2008, and it deals with police brutality in Canada. It's a hip-hop theater piece. And it tells the story of a young, uh, a young DJ from a hip hop group who shot and killed by police and the aftermath, his friends dealing with that loss afterwards. And this, I started writing this before the Black Lives Matter movement started, before Hamilton was a sensation. And at the time people were like, in Canada, were like, what's hip hop theater? What is this? I don't understand, right? I'm, I'm working on a sequel to that piece now called Black and Blue Matters, which is a full on hip hop musical. It's basically a rap battle between a cop who shot a kid and the kid who was shot they're both like really messed up, which by the way, this, this is a story that's very common. White, oftentimes the police officers who shoot people and kill them, they're really fucked up by this as well. It's a very traumatic event, right? So that's a piece. 
my wife and I are co-writing a piece called Redbone Coonhound, which is a, a satirical comedic piece that is about black white race relations in Canada throughout history. Like, you know, I'm just trying to, trying to explore things with humor and with artistry and not just make it like kind of dogmatic, beating people over the head with don't be racist, which most people understand by now. Well, one that I saw that was really good. And uh, like I said, time flies, it's already an hour. So I, I apologize for stealing your time. It's but right, one man. that I saw was his, uh, Historical Rose on Netflix. Oh. Man, I for me, I thought it was awesome because that's a nuanced approach that... Um, for example, they have Anne Frank, they had Martin Luther King, they had Freddie Mercury, and mm -hmm. and roasts aren't meant to be like offensive. It's it's like them kind of having fun with each other, but they had uh, Harriet Tubman on there for the uh, Abraham Lincoln one, and wow, and and I'll be honest, man, dude, you have to watch her piece on that. It was like it made me think. I got to see that. I didn't yeah. even know that show exists. That's, that's really cool. It, it was really good. And, and the message with Freddie Mercury was really good. It was just about, you know, being yourself, but with Harriet Tubman, she, she calls out Abraham Lincoln for owning slaves and for, well, yeah. yeah, for, yeah. for it yeah. being a little bit, well, you know, here I am using white language, like to lessen the blow a little bit, but for it, him, his approach is being insincere. Right. Yeah. Right. And, Which and he, Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, which, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I Every February, I, I tour to schools for Black History Month and I talk to kids about Black history in Canada or whatever. And a lot of a lot of kids don't know that Lincoln owned slaves. A lot of people, they know him for the Emancipation Proclamation. They know him for liberating slaves. And, and you know, it's easy to look back at history and be like, all right, you know, yeah. Abe Lincoln, one of the good guys, but you're right. Like there's a lot of, a lot of stuff he could be called out for that people don't know. The other thing too, and I'm curious on your thoughts. And again, I know we're at an hour, so I'll let you go. I won't, I won't keep, uh, keep you here, but the idea of like tearing statues down. Right. And mm -hmm. I, I have mixed feelings about that because I think that on one hand, this is my perception. You keep the statues up, but you educate people like, you know, this person was, this is the way that they thought back then, right? And this is not okay today versus tearing it down and it's it being erased. So that's that's my take on it is being educative. I don't know what my take is put them in a museum. You know, mm -hmm. I I'm generally speaking, I I I'm a law-abiding person. Not generally speaking, I am a law-abiding person. So I, I would say going through the proper procedures and through through the courts to have statues taken down and put into museums where context can be given, I would be in favor of. But listen, I'm a middle-class black man living in Canada who's an artist, right? I'm in a position of privilege to say, oh, we should go through. If some guy from the hood who is getting harassed by cops every single day and his friends have been killed and you know his other friends have been incarcerated for some bullshit, gets pissed off and tears down a statue that I think should be removed anyway, fuck the statue, I don't know. <laughs> I don't care. Like, I, yeah. yeah, take it down. <laughs> why? Why are we so attached to these things? I wonder. Well, why am? Why are people such as myself so attached to them? Well, I think you raise a valid point. I think preserving history so people understand where we came from and where we're at is important. But I think whether it's having a statue of a, a Confederate soldier or flying the friggin' Confederate flag at state houses, which still happens in places like South Carolina. 
if I was a black person living there, I would not be comfortable, right? I see that as, it's like, I mean, the, the easy example is, imagine being a Jew in Germany and they have statues of Nazis up to commemorate the war. It's like, I don't think any Jew can forget about World War II. Like we don't need statues reminding. All I would see as a Jewish person is, is a swastika and a sign of the attempted genocide of my people. And I think for black people, the Confederate flag and, and statues of Confederate soldiers is the same thing. I don't think we need to, to trigger people with something like that. Just take it down, put it in a museum. That is um, like, thank you for that. That's the most like duh thing, <laughs> you know, for me. And it's like, I can be a little bit duh thick headed, right? No. But this is a symbol, like the Confederate yeah. flag. This is a symbol of like overt Patriot. racism. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this isn't where now we're sort of th- seeing things. It's, it's more covert that's overt. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, and look, I got blind spots too. And I, I've, I've told this story before, but I joke about it. Like a couple of years ago, I stopped watching the NFL and I'm a diehard football fan. I, I was, I played football growing up. I was a Steelers fan. I love football. And then when the Kaepernick thing started and I was so pissed off about the NFL's failure to see his point that I stopped watching football. And I, and I, I can't, I haven't gone back since really. And I, I've told this story many times, but my wife called me out and she was right. And she was like, so now you are, you're boycotting the NFL because they're disrespecting black people. But for years, when these players in mass numbers were accused of like raping women or beating women, which by the way, like it's a major problem in the NFL. Like there's, you know, I don't know if you're a football fan, but this guy, Ray Rice was caught on, I'm, I'm laughing just because it's so horrific, was caught on video uppercutting his wife and knocking her unconscious and he got a three-game suspension and he dragged her out on camera in vegas right three games that's it and dude i watched football that season i watched his team play i'm sure i watched the 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 ravens play and and my wife rightfully called me out and was like how come you were okay with watching football when they were just basically saying it's okay to beat up women but now that it's affecting black people so so i say this to tell you I'm in no position to judge if you had a blind spot about why statues should be taken down. We all have blind spots, right? If it's not our lived experience, it's easy to like not see it from someone else's perspective. But I think conversations like this are important so that both of us can grow and learn from them. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I appreciate it. And going on to the shipment last thing, but I'm starting to see the bigger metaphor there, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And, and please mm-hmm. hear me out. I Correct me. Mm-hmm. But Muhammad Ali used to be Cassius Clay mm-hmm. and he realized, Hey, that's my slave name. Why am I entertaining all these white people? Like, how is that? How is that different? Mm-hmm. Slavery, right. Mm-hmm. That, that we're just entertainers, you know? And uh, I sort of saw the shipment as like with the minstrel song with, again, with Ma, Ma Rainey's black bottom of mm-hmm. Elvis Presley stole that music. Right. Mm-hmm that we need to be aware of the level of systemic exploitation, right? Like citations in history books, we use citations. And now I know why. So we're citing where we get our our facts from. Mm -hmm. And to me watching the shipment and, and now looking back at it, it's like, why are we so okay with us using black bodies as entertainment? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it, it, you see again. It's like in the in the Matrix, right? Once you take the red pill, there's no going back. I, I think right. once you start understanding the history of North America, whether it's Canada or the U.S., and how these countries were founded, and the history of systemically exploiting people of color and denigrating them through through movies and TV and performance, you start to understand how we got here and why the, the, represent, the representation of people of color is either non-existent or offensive. And I think it's great. I think it's great that you're, you're going down this rabbit hole, man. It's gonna get, <laughs> it's gonna get more and more uh, revelatory as you keep going. Did I say well, all right? Revel- revelatory? revelatory? I, I yeah, I like that. That's good. And, and the number one thing is it's not about like me punching myself in the face. It's about let's bring this to the light. So, yeah. and and you've helped uh, help be there for that. We are at an hour and eleven minutes, and uh, I've stolen more of your time than I said I would. So that's all right. It, it was not stolen. It was my pleasure talking to you. Like I said, our mutual friend Chris Francis speaks very highly of you, and it was a great conversation, man. I I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Yes, Chris is he's a great guy. He's actually checked me a few times. And a very special shout out to him. It has made me a better person. And I love him for it. He's done the same to me. Shout out to Chris. (laughs) Shout out to Chris. It's his birthday today. So happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday, Chris. All right. Okay. Thank you so much. My pleasure, man. Let's do it again sometime. Once again, that was Amari Newton. Uh sharing his experiences, his understanding, and, and kind of like, you know, help me to understand that we need to be critical when we see representation. Like, what's, what's, the, what's the goal here? Is the goal to authentically represent different cultures, different perspectives, different identities, or is it to pay lip service to them? to try and please, why do people do what they do? And this has been a, you know, one of the tenets of, uh, of the show, of your show, is what is the intent in what we're doing? And let me tell you that. I've done a lot of things in my life, and I don't think the, well, I don't think, that's me bullshitting. I know the intent wasn't pure. I know it wasn't. And you know the difference in your heart when what you're doing is pure versus when it is impure, when you're doing it for exploitative, exploitative reasons. So always ask yourself, what is the intent here? Am I trying to help someone or am I trying to take from someone? Thank you very much for listening. Um, Please let us know your thoughts, feelings on the show. We can't wait to hear from you. We get back to you as soon as we can. Um, You know, without you, the listener, the show would not be possible. So thank you very much and have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.